This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Our scripture this evening comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Amen. Uh, There's a statue of Jesus uh, in Korea. I think some of you have uh, seen it. Uh, It went viral uh, for a little bit. It's uh, at a Christian sculpture park in Yongcheon. And this picture, uh, the statue of Jesus is awesome. Uh, let me show it to you. I'm not sure if you can see it. Uh, it's a little, little bit small, I know, for your screen, but it's a, it's, it's a, uh, a chiseled Jesus. It's a Jesus uh, that's shredded, right? Um, if you can see, uh, there are, yeah, you can see the abs, the tone, all of it. Uh, so some people call this statue the Korean Jesus. Uh, some others uh, call this uh, statue shredded Jesus. I call it the rock Jesus because it looks like the actor, the rock, muscular. It's made out of rock, and, you know, Jesus is the rock, right? Yes, I apologize for that, for that joke. Please don't step out. Uh, It's fascinating. Uh, Throughout uh, generations and cultures, uh, people have heard of Jesus. And in knowing and learning more about Jesus, what they tend to do is make Jesus look a little bit more like themselves as opposed to a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago. Isn't that fascinating? I'm sure uh, you've seen uh, different movies where uh, they're praying to a baby Jesus. Right? And it's this funny image of you know, people trying to comprehend uh, this figure, this character, this person who lived 2,000 years ago. And they're trying their best with their own imagination, trying to connect with Jesus. Uh, you know, it happens not just with the image of Jesus, but it happens with the actual faith. If you uh, were, were Christian before coming to Korea, 
if you enter into a Korean church, one of the things you'll recognize is that Christianity back home and Christianity here, it looks and feels a little bit different, doesn't it? If you've attended. Uh, And the common mistake is always judging uh, the other form of Christianity because you think your form of Christianity is right, it's better. And so as an American, it's, it's very easy and common for an American to come to Korea, attend a Korean service, feel a bit out of place, and therefore start to judge, why do they do this, why do they do that? And what also happens is the Korean that will uh, go to the U.S. will think the same thoughts. That common mistake is to judge someone else's understanding of Jesus out of your cultural understanding of Jesus. And what that should help us see is not that American Christianity or Western Christianity or African Christianity or Asian Christianity or Korean Christianity is not necessarily better, right? If we can take a step back, we should be able to see cultures are real and God uh, enters into that culture via the gospel and redeems it. And so certain cultures are better at sacrifice. Others are better at thought. And so you start to recognize there's these, these gifts that each version of, of Christianity has. Uh, all good versions, uh, all fallen versions as well. And the reason I bring that up is to help us understand your understanding of Jesus. Chances are you are not the one person in all of history and in all the world that got it right. So if we can all begin there today to understand that we all come with our own cultural baggage of understanding Jesus, the question that we're asking is, who is Jesus? Are there ways in which we project our image and our cultural understanding of Jesus? Right? In America, uh, Christian nationalism is, is growing. At least it seems like it's growing. And for me, I would recognize that is not what I think that Jesus is talking about. And so in that, the idea is for us to be able to see clearly. And the question is, how do you know that you see Jesus clearly? How do you know that your understanding of Jesus is not a projection of your cultural understanding of Jesus, but it is the real self-revealed version of Jesus? How do you know that? Uh, One of the ways that uh, you know that you are seeing the real Jesus or understanding the real Jesus is that there's a wonder. That there's a wonder of who this Jesus is. There's There's a real curiosity. But even more than that, this attraction, a wonder of if you get a glimpse of him, you you find something within your heart where it becomes alive. And and that's what we're talking about as a Christian. I think historically, he is the most interesting person. And so in verse 25, you see this wonder, right? Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to him. And you see this throughout the gospel, right? As Luke is speaking with eyewitnesses, Often the stories were, there was a crowd that formed. People had a wonder. There was this attraction people had to Jesus. And it's important to to note that because the ways in which often people see Christianity is through a totally different lens. They consider Christianity 
a myth. They consider the Bible a book of fables. Right? They think if you understand, if you are a Christian, they consider you not smart, you know, not intelligent. And they have all these values of what a Christian is. And so what I would say is if you really had a glimpse of the historical Jesus, even though you may not decide to believe, you couldn't help but, but think he is interesting. For how was he able to draw such crowds? Uh, in this uh, one poem by William Blake, he talks about how people tend to see Christ differently. He writes, The vision of Christ that thou dost see is my vision's greatest enemy. Saying, your version of Christ, your uh, depiction of Christ, and my understanding of Christ, it's, it's at odds. Uh, thine, your God, your Jesus, has a great hook nose like thine, like yours. Mine, my Jesus, has a snub nose like mine. And now he's talking about the ways in which subconsciously you may even picture Jesus for some reason, the, the image of Jesus, you know, Jesus' nose looks like that person's nose, right? And my, my, my vision of Jesus looks like, you know, me. And then he concludes this, uh, this poem by saying, Both read uh, the Bible day and night, but thou readest black where I read white. Talking about as you read this, you see this black image. And when I read it, I read this white image. And what he's trying to get at is the tendency that we have to project our understanding and our view of who Christ is. And so the question again is, is your understanding of Christ a projection of your culture, of your own imagination? Or is it how Jesus revealed himself to be? And the thing is, if you truly get a glimpse of the historical Jesus, you are interested. You find yourself drawn to this character, though you may not believe. And I think this is tr a true factual statement, in my opinion. I think you cannot be a believer and be super intrigued by this person, Jesus. Because when you see his historical life, I think you want to believe. I actually think one of the ways that you have understood uh, and you've seen a true glimpse of Jesus, if though you don't believe, you want to believe. Does it make sense that you want to believe even though you don't believe because this glimpse, this understanding, this, the stories connected to Jesus are so fascinating because it's the life that he lived. It's the way that he loved it's the wisdom that he displayed. It's the salvation that he offered. Once you understand all of those ways in which it's the life that he actually lived, that he was above all these accusations, right? it's the way that he loved this grace where tax collectors, those outcasts, the prostitutes were drawn to him. It's the way in which he would know so much more of the Jewish uh, worldview and, and the Torah, and he could debate with the best. And when you understand the kind of person he was, regardless of whether, how, whichever way you see Christianity, you're fascinated. And that's, that's one of the ways that you're not just getting an American uh, portrayal of Jesus, a Korean portrayal of Jesus. One of the ways that you know 
that you are seeing a real glimpse of Jesus as he is interesting. Uh, Reza Aslan, he's a well-known author, written several religious books, uh, a professing Muslim, says this about Jesus. Uh, people always ask me why I'm interested in Jesus. How could you not be interested in the person I just described? He sounds like the most interesting person who ever lived. He is the most interesting man that has ever lived. If you know the Dosakis commercial, that man is not the most interesting person that has ever lived. It's Jesus. The way in which we understand time, right? It's, it's, it's um, this idea that when Jesus comes, we consider that A.D., Right? It, it, he is a fascinating cultural icon that has started this movement of faith in Christianity. That's one of the ways that you recognize that you've seen a real glimpse of Jesus. If church is a duty, is opening up the word is a duty, if wanting to build this relationship with Jesus is a duty, and not a privilege, not an interest of yours, well, chances are your understanding of Christ is a cultural projection, whether it's American, Korean, whichever country that you are from. If he is not an intriguing, an intriguing man, a person who should uh, captivate all your senses, your senses. So that's one of the ways that you can sense that Jesus always had this crowd. He was always an interest of the religious, of the marginalized. It's this wonder. One of the other ways that you also can sense that, you, that your understanding of Jesus is, is more proper is not just a wonder that you have about Jesus, an interest that you have about Jesus, but you see the cost. You see his statements, and it bothers you. Even as a Christian, it bothers you. If it does not bother you, if it's, not e if it's easy for you, again, chances are it's a cultural understanding of Christianity, a cultural understanding of Christ, as opposed to how he reveals himself. And so here, Jesus, he is the opposite of a hype man. If you know what a hype man is, he's a person in a rap video, he like hypes up the rapper. Jesus is not the hype man, okay? He is the down man, right? He is the one that when the crowds come, he does this over and over and over. When the crowds come, he speaks words of truth to help them decide whether Jesus is someone that they will follow. And so in Luke 8, when he seeds the crowds, he talks about this parable of four soils, saying there's these different kinds of people with different kinds of hearts. And only this one kind of heart of good soil will you actually hear what I'm saying and then you actually live it out. Everyone else will be excited for a moment, but they will scatter. What's he doing? He's challenging them. Right? Don't just see me and project what you think I am, but hear my words. He does this all the time. He, he, create, he creates such a uh, huge crowd in Luke 8.40. As he's about to enter into the city, there's already a crowd waiting for him. I mean, he's like rock star level. 
And this is, you know, pre-Twitter, right? So all the more, it's a whole other level of the wonder that he draws. And in, again, these these conversations that he has with these massive crowds, sometimes 5,000, 10,000, maybe even 15,000 people, what he would talk about in those moments is judgment, right? Challenging them about their faith. This is the kind of person Jesus is. And somehow, someway, with 12 people, he changes the world. And so what do we get here in this passage? What hard truth does he, does he state? In verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you've grown up in church, you've heard this verse, as you hear it now, you're not offended. And let me tell you, if you're hearing Jesus' words you should be offended. It should bother you because this language is so strong. He's not saying that you should literally hate your father and mother because he would honor the Torah. He would honor the Ten Commandments. He would honor the, the importance of honoring your parents. And so to love your parents would be to honor your parents. So then what's he saying? Is he saying a, a new commandment that's you know, that's against the Old Testament? No. What he is saying is uh, a new understanding of who God is. Because in this day and age, where there was real differences, if the parents wanted the children to do something, but for that child, if it was uh, against their faith in God, what the parents would feel like is that they don't honor the parents. So in our culture, it's really hard to understand because I think for the most part, my guess is you come from a, from a background where your parents may be a little bit more open-minded uh, to faith. And so if you become a Christian, they're not offended thinking, how dare you become a Christian and, and this sense of dishonor and hatred. But for others of us, we have that where maybe your parents are very much anti Christian. They don't like how, what Christians are. So if you come to faith, they may feel like you are actually dishonoring them. And that's what he's talking about. In those moments when the parents have a, a, diff, a certain perception or an idea of how the children should behave, but for those children, as they try to honor God, it actually goes against some of their parents' wishes. For them, it's, they feel like it's dishonor, and they will feel disrespected, and they will feel a form of hate. And that's what he is talking about. Not just father, mother, but it includes spouse, wife. It includes children. It includes brothers and sisters. This is the closest relationships you will ever have. So Jesus is saying, if I am not above the very closest people to you, you cannot be my disciple. Strong, strong words. And then he continues on. Verse 27, uh, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. All of us know that Jesus went to the cross. As he says these words, this is pre-cross Jesus. And so we have to understand what he is saying. 
pre-cross. Meaning, they didn't understand what was going to happen in the near future. And so when Jesus is teaching this, I'm sure that what they were guessing and what they were feeling is, is this another hyperbole-type statement where Jesus says, if, you sin, if, if something causes you to sin, you know, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. That's hyperbole, an exaggerated statement not meant to, take, to be taken literally to communicate a point. And the question that the disciples would be having at this point would be, is this hyperbole? Is this an exaggerated statement to communicate a point? Because they would see criminals taking up their cross, going to Golgotha, right? They would see these criminals hanging. And so when Jesus says, if you want to follow after me and be a disciple of mine, you have to carry your own cross. And that would have been a jaw-dropping statement. They'd be confused. They'd be trying to figure out what in the world does Jesus mean? And he says, you have to deny yourself, right? You have to deny yourself. You have to bear your cross and follow me. What are you denying of yourself? What self-denial is he talking about? What does it mean to bear your own cross? It's not like no pain, no gain type mentality, right? We know this uh, if you work out. You know, that whole idea is you have to go into that place of pain to be able to push yourself, your heart, your muscles, to, to, to work out, to, to get to that place of health. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Self-discipline. And that is not what Jesus is talking about. What is Jesus talking about? What is this self-denial that he is talking about? He's talking about what we would call sin. Again, I think one of the most misunderstood concepts in Scripture. Because for us, we flatten it as don't steal, don't lie. And that's what we feel guilty with. Don't look at this, don't do that. And so that's often our spiritual reality. A bunch of do's and don'ts, and you just try to do some good things, and that's what you feel like is faith. But what does he talk about in the passage right before? talks about pride, right? The root of all our sin. And the way that he described pride is that he would see all the people who are interested in the, the, the seats of honor. And as everyone was wanting, wanting these seats of honor, he saw that and he accused them of their root sin when the, in the chapter, in, in, the, in the verses before, a man is healed before their eyes. They have no compassion, no celebration, no sympathy. And Jesus equates their lack of love for someone who was just healed, and they, he ties it to the sin of pride. And basically what he is saying is the essence of all sin is a self-obsessive nature that we love ourselves first and foremost. It's not that we are all malicious people out to kill one another. It's that at the end of the day, we care about ourselves more than others. And that's the way that the world works. And because all of us are like this, we have these systems where the powerful always oppress the weaker. Because we're always just simply looking out for ourselves. And Jesus pins the, the people with that sin, 
saying it's your self-obsessive nature. It's always me, 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 as opposed to loving God and loving others. It's that. That's what he's talking about. So when he says, what does it mean to bear your own cross? It means then to not put yourself first. That's what it's saying. That no longer is your life goal and ambition all about you. Now you are trying to put God first. Now you're trying to put others first. Take up your cross is saying it is no longer I who is number one. It's saying others are number one. This is why in Luke 13, in the chapter, uh, in the chapter before, there's people that think that they're believers. Again, it's a self Uh, self-projected understanding of Jesus and what salvation means. So they continue to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. And so in Luke 13, Jesus says, uh, talking about, you know, the, the life after, saying, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And what does Jesus say to these people? I tell you, I do not know where you're coming from. I do not know where you come from. All these people think that they know Jesus, that they uh, have received his, his offer of salvation. And what Jesus says is, I don't know you. Isn't that a powerful saying? I don't know you. What's happening in cultures all around is we project an idea of who Jesus is. Oh, I can't believe in a God who judges. No, he's a God of love. And so I'll be okay. So people have a false understanding of what salvation is. This is why you can be religious but not truly be a Christian. Because you could be religious, you can think that God is good, you can think that even Jesus is the Son of God, and at at the end of it all, all your prayers are about yourself, and God is for you. And that's it. Until you can change that You will always be religious, but always be about yourself. And what Jesus is saying here then, to take up your cross, you're changing that. No longer will you be religious for yourself, you'll be religious for God. That God is your ultimate end, that you will want to love others. And so he says it again in verse 33, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To summarize what he is saying, the cost, the cost for following Jesus is your closest relationships, your personal possessions, and yourself. You're no longer number one. There is essentially nothing more costly than following Jesus. This is why he is a fascinating character. Because he lived in such a way He loved in such a way. He displayed knowledge in such a way. He was able to heal. So people are drawn to him. They're intrigued, fascinated by him. And in those moments when he has these crowds, he would say these hard, hard truths. If you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father. If you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. If you want to follow me, you have to renounce all things. I like how uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British pastor who lived a little bit ago, uh, the way he talks about this, and he, he says it in, in, in this way, in terms of the way in which we end up projecting our understanding of Christianity. 
He is saying, if in your faith that there aren't moments where there's deep struggle, if God agrees with all your thoughts and God is okay with completely with your whole life, chances are you have picked and chosen what you want to believe about God and therefore God is more of a projection of what you think God is as opposed to who he really is. What he is saying is if you hear Jesus' words as honestly as possible, there's going to be moments in your life where you hear Jesus' words, you sense the Spirit working, and it pains you. You know God's leading you in a certain way, but you don't want to obey. If being a Christian is an easy thing, it's comfortable, God is good, he's a good father, oh, this is great, chances are you are not, you have not heard Jesus' call for discipleship. You have picked your theology and your Jesus ends up looking a little bit more like you than how he presents himself. You see, if God agrees with everything you do, you are following a projection of yourself, not God. You hear stories of how this plays out when someone has truly chosen Christ that they literally sacrifice their life. It's happening right now in Afghanistan. This past week, I was talking with a friend, and he was telling me uh, this email that he received from uh, one, of, one, of their, um, one of their group leaders. And it's a, it's a, a message from an anonymous uh, underground Afghan church member. And he says this about the challenge of following Christ as the Taliban has taken over. He says, at this point, we have come to the reality they were likely going to die. But please don't pray that we don't die. Instead, pray that we would die quickly or without fear. You can't say that if you're number one. If life is all about you, the prayer and the only prayer that you end up praying is, God, get me out of this situation. But for somehow, they recognize the situation they're in. They want to die well. They want to die and suffer in a way that there would still be a testimony of Christ. And so the question is, how in the world can any of us actually do that? Right? We like to think that we're always choosing Christ, but I think if we're really honest, there's a discrepancy in terms of what we say we believe and how we believe. So how do we actually make this decision to follow Christ? He continues on, Jesus, Uh, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all uh, all who see it begin to mock it, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Do you notice when he tells, uh, you know, in this story, when he, uh, you know, is encouraged to sit down and to count the cost? It's not before he begins, right? Because in verse 30, he says, the man began to build and was not able to finish. He was saying, at that moment, you should consider. Yes, you have to consider in the beginning of this decision whether Jesus is God and whether you're going to live in this way. But then Jesus' call is also in the middle of it, in the thick of it, count the cost again. If you don't count the cost, you know what happens? 
you do the routine, right? You continue to put your head down and you march on forward because that's a Christian way to go. And what Jesus would challenge you with is, no, count the cost again. Following me is hard. It's a narrow path. It's bloodied. If you want to follow me, think about who you're following. You see, the cost of following Jesus is high. So we can't We can't uh, follow blindly. You can't make a spontaneous, casual decision and continue on with it. It's like running a marathon. It has to be a choice. You work towards it. The cost of following Jesus is high. You don't follow Jesus just by your emotions, right? It's just not a moment where where God speaks and and you're moved. Yes, you make that decision, but the invitation of Jesus is, not, is, to, is for you to not just make a decision with your heart, but also with your mind. It's calculated. You're thinking through, is this what I want? It has to be reasonable because the cost is that high. And you have to understand, this is an outrageous call. No other rabbi had a call like this. So the question is, who is Jesus? How could he have the audacity to tell people to follow me, take up your cross, be willing to die? Because his claim is that he is not just the son of God, that he is God. And so you make that decision. If you believe he is God, if you believe he is good, if you believe he is sovereign, if you believe he is loving and gracious, that's how you put him number one. It's not by grit. It's actually by logic. You also know that's what your heart wants. It's an outrageous call only if Jesus is not God. If Jesus is God, it's a completely reasonable demand. He continues on, the next parable, about what it means to count the cost. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate? Uh, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000. So you have 10,000, another king is coming with 20,000. Would you not consider this? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. That's arrogance, right? Arrogance would be, well, I got 10,000, he got 20,000. We could take him. Wisdom is he's got 20,000, I've got 10,000. There's a different way. Let's send a delegation and ask for peace. What Jesus is getting at here is not simply to count the cost of following Jesus. You have to hear this. It's not just counting the cost of following Jesus. He's challenging him, count the cost of not following Jesus. This is about peace. Think about Yes, the cost of following Jesus. Your relationship with money changes. Your relationship with people changes. Your relationship with sex changes. In all these ways, your relationship changes because now Jesus is first and foremost. And now Jesus is saying, now consider the cost of not following him. It's a life of sin. A life of misery. A life where you cannot conquer your inhibitions, your desires. You keep on putting yourself number one, and it's a life of misery. So he's saying to count the cost of not following Jesus. You see, the cost of following Jesus is high. The cost of not following Jesus is higher. And so you have to take 
all of this into account. You see, essentially, there's nothing more costly than following Jesus except for the cost of not following Jesus. This is why people come to faith. It is not that the world has no pleasures to offer. Every Christian recognizes a sacrifice, a real sacrifice that they make. What we are saying is Jesus is better. That's what we're saying. We're saying we believe it is better to live in this way and to follow Christ than to have every pleasure met at our fingertips because there's a better way. I like how James Edwards says it in this commentary. Like all things in life of surpassing value, the gospel is both costly and worth the cost. True love makes great sacrifices for the beloved and also great demands on the beloved. This is why people get married. Is it pleasurable to have many different partners? Sure. But is it better? Is it worth the cost to commit to one, to have a, 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 a relationship where you are known and loved than anyone can ever know and love you, is gracious to you, to build a marriage and a family in that? Is it not better, is what Jesus would say. Because great things of value, it's costly, but it's always worth the cost, Right? How many of you are, are, have siblings, right? We have siblings because your parents decided after having one child, oh, that's painful, pregnancy is bad, you know, labor is bad, the first several months is hard, and then, you know, however, however old you are, all of that was painful as well. And it's in that decision they're saying it's worth it to have another child because that child is worth the pain. Worth the cost. And that's Jesus' argument. You don't simply make a decision to follow Christ with your heart. You make a decision to follow him with your mind. One of the uh, best ways I think uh, Scripture explains this is uh, Jacob's rela- relationship with Rachel. If you know his story, he, he worked seven years to marry this woman, Rachel. He gets duped, wakes up the next morning, finds Leah. How does that happen? I don't know. Uh, afterwards, he goes back to Laban and says, hey, I want Rachel. And so he works seven more years for Rachel, and this is what it says. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and, there, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Right? All the women said, aw. Right? Isn't this a beautiful idea of what love is? Seven years, no problem. I'm that much in love with you. That's the idea. Why would you count the cost and still go forward? Because you believe Jesus is worth it all. But I wrote decisions. It's not just one decision to follow Christ. It's decisions. It's in the midst of it. You continue to count the cost. There's times when you forget and you don't see Jesus, so you count the cost again. See, Christianity is not simply putting your head down and marching forward when you don't want to follow. It's taking that moment to count the cost again. And I'll tell you, I've probably counted the cost more in the past two years than ever in my life. Because the cost is real. And so you have to consider, is Jesus worth it? And only when you decide Jesus is worth it can you go all in again. And so lastly, the influence of following Jesus. The influence of following Jesus. 
You saw the cost. You see the decisions. Now what happens when you go all in? There's an influence that you have to others. You see, it seems like out of nowhere Jesus then you know, changes the subject. Verse 34, salt is good, but, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it, how, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no use either for soil or for the manure par, pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He transitions to the idea of what salt is. Salt was used for preservation, for taste of food. Using this idea, he says, worthless salt is thrown away. There's no use for it. How does this connect to discipleship? Jesus is showing us how the world will come to faith. This is Jesus the salesman, okay? Jesus the salesman, you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't portray a false image and then dupe you. He shows you everything in, in HD clarity. And when people see that person following Christ, that's also compelling, right? That's also a wonder. Why? Why does he do this? How does she do that? It's this wonder that happens. And you see, we need to hear this in our generation because I think we've got it all mixed up. I think the way that we try to share our faith is to make it as pleasant as possible. We try to share that, yes, God is good and he is faithful. But we, then we stay away from, from conversations about judgment, truth. And we, we continue to think. We just need to show the good things of our faith. And what Jesus would say is, no, the way in which you are salty as a Christian, the way in which you influence the world is by a total commitment to me. You see, I think the, uh, the, the picture that we often paint of Jesus is Jesus, you know, on Instagram, right? So it's this studio version of Jesus. He's got, you know, that smile. His teeth are all white. He's got that nice hair. He looks like whichever culture that you are from. He's got a nice flowing robe, and a caption says, I love you, right? Come follow me. I think that's the, that's the image that we try to portray to the world. This is Jesus. Oh, come follow and Jesus, I think, is very, very clear of how he depicts himself. He is humble and meek, yet strong and courageous. The image of Jesus is not in a studio, it's, it's in the dirt path. And this path is headed, if you can see far into the image, it's this image of Calvary. You see crosses there. He's headed towards there, and as he's headed towards there, he has a crown of thorns. He's battered, bruised, bloodied. Over his shoulder, he carries the cross. And in the caption, it says, I love you. I died for you. Because of that, come, carry your cross, and follow me. That's the full gospel. That's the full gospel. Jesus will be followed, not because it's easy, but because he is worth it. When someone sees your life, do they see a Jesus worth following? Or is it an easy Christianity? If it's an easy Christianity, if it's simply about immediate pleasure, I promise you there's a lot more pleasure offered everywhere else. 
what we want to show the world is a Jesus worth following, a Jesus worth sacrificing for. Charles Spurgeon says this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has had so much influence over the church. The cost is extremely high, church. It's extremely high. There'll be many moments in your faith where you'll count the cross and ask yourself, is Jesus worth following? But if you can humble yourself, open your eyes and see who Jesus is, even though he is bloodied and battered, you will see his love, his devotion. He needed to, wanted to conquer sin and death for you, for me. That he is committed to us. This is how we become salt of the earth. And imagine a church that does that. Imagine a place where you see other people committed to this life. You count the cost. In your groups, you wrestle. You share about your struggles, your doubts. You receive prayer. Imagine a community like that. That's what Jesus created. Not a service to attend, but a community to be a part of. And as you struggle together, you see the beauty of Christ and you feel the love of Christ. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening, and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.